Is now the time to invest in video games? All this and more on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Video games is an asset class. The computer store where time stood still. Defender's source code is revealed. And the curious history of games on vinyl. All this and our community question of the week coming up on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Neil, when you think of a sound retirement portfolio, what kind of assets come to mind? (laughs) Well, I'm definitely not an expert on this kind of thing. (laughs) Um, But I guess the traditional spread of stocks and shares, nothing too risky, uh, a sprinkling of gold bars. Gold always seems to be the go-to thing when disaster strikes, like the pandemic. I think Mm -hmm. we saw a spike in gold prices. Uh, We did also see a spike in Bitcoin prices at the start of the pandemic, but that's well and truly crashed as we head towards, (laughs) hopefully towards the end of it. So just a nice balanced um, approach, I'd say. But I don't do anything, any of this myself. I, I have a pension pot, but I pay into that pot so that somebody who does know what they're talking about can can spread these risks and, and invest in all these things for me. So, yeah, I live in hope that when I do eventually reach retirement age, there might actually be something for me, John. But that's my approach. How about you? Oh, oh to live in a country where pensions still exist, Neil, you're, you're such, a, <laughs> such a lucky Do they not guy. exist in the U.S.? Uh, well, for people that are probably in their 50s to 60s, they still probably were able to get under, under a pension scheme. But unless you're a government employee like I am, uh, any sort of private enterprise, you are on your own when it comes to well, uh, yeah, investing I, for retirement. I am very much on my own. I, I have a private pension because I'm oh, self-employed. Oh, I see. I see. I didn't. I thought maybe in the UK, everybody just everybody just got a pension. Like you know. Well, well, they do actually. Well, there <laughs> but, you go. Um, so I have a private pension, but that, that means no company's making a, an additional contribution to it. But we have the state-funded pension, so uh, we all pay national insurance. And then I think the retirement age is about 67. Okay. So when I get to 67, if I get to 67, I get to <laughs> have my share of that. But yeah, 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 I didn't know it worked like that in the U.S. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, right now in the old Schaller retirement account, uh, I've got you know a pretty conservative mix of index funds, high-yield savings accounts, and of course the family home. But Neil, we may need to add a new asset class to our investing. We may need to start talking about video games as not something you collect for fun, not something you fire up to reignite your nostalgia juices, but as something that holds and gains value for years to come. Now? Why Why now, John? Video games have been worth money for quite a long time now, haven't they? Yeah, yeah I mean, that's that's true. I think we're seeing something here that's truly unprecedented. Uh, back in April, we talked about a sealed copy of Super Mario Brothers selling for $600,000, just an unbelievable sum. Uh, we covered that on, on this very program, in fact. And last week, uh, The Legend of Zelda sold for $870,000, so a new record, but... Not to be outdone, Neil, just a few days ago, subreddit user Quinn Mang shared the news that Mario has clawed his way back to number one. A sealed copy of Super Mario 64 for the Nintendo 64 has just sold for a record $1.5 million. That's an insane amount of money, isn't it? $1.5 million 
dollars for Super Mario 64. It, it was 64, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. You said on the N64, which was it came out in I think it was 96 in mm-hmm. Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit later here in the UK, and I bought it. I was working at a supermarket on the checkouts um, at the time, and in my lunch break, I remember the store was next door, and I ran over there and picked up a copy. Um, and uh, I think I paid about sixty pounds, just under sixty pounds for it at the time. So to think that I held that in my hands, one point five million dollars worth of worth of game in my hands, ripped it open, and um, I don't even know what I did with it. I, I probably gave it away when I sold the console. Um, yeah, I mean, is it truly worth one and a half million dollars? Do you think, or, or are there shenanigans afoot here? Because it seems pretty well, wild. You know, I've read a lot of comments from message boards online saying that these auctions are all a scam and there's crazy money laundering going on, and no game should be worth this much. But you know, let's be honest here. This is the reality of the collectibles market. It is on fire. It's not just uh, it's not just video games. It's sports cards. Remember how sports cards were worth nothing forever? <laughs> you know, here yeah. in the United States, I have five to six hundred thousand baseball cards from around 1987 <laughs> to around 1992, and their collective value is worth less than the cardboard they're printed on. But the 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 market has changed, and in big money is entering this space. Uh, you know, and you could make you could make the claim for even traditional uh, traditional collectibles. You know, are Picassos really worth one hundred and eighty million dollars? You know, a, a painting on a piece of canvas, or is a nineteen sixty two Ferrari two fifty GTO really worth fifty million dollars? Mm. Um, the reality is, even though there's quite a few copies of Mario sixty four around, there aren't that many that are sealed and graded, and even fewer than that have been graded and are in the upper echelon of condition. So, uh, now, you know, as far as did, did I have this new? This is something new for me. The other two examples that really just sold for a lot recently, Mario and Zelda, I had those games, but I didn't buy them new. By the time I got a NES in in 1990, they were already relegated to Nintendo's budget re-release line. So there's a certain amount of separation for me there. But I most definitely remember going into the store and seeing Super Mario there on the shelf at Kmart, probably for around $59.99. I mean, this was a game I could have bought new. I could have kept sealed. And I could be cashing out right now. Uh, Neil, I mean, you you obviously, you bought Mario 64. Yeah, it was such a big deal. I mean, I bought it specifically because I went to a friend's house to play on his new N64. And I was absolutely blown away with it. Um, it did for a period. It turned me away from the PC. Not completely. I kept my PC, but I was a, a hardened PC gamer. And it just turned mm. me away for a few months to say, okay, this is something better. Um, this... Uh, Wave Race 64 I had, I was really into, and then GoldenEye and Mario Kart 64, uh, and then Zelda, the Ocarina of Time. Between those games, I mean, it didn't matter that the N64 does have a library of some absolutely terrible games, and it doesn't have a huge library, but the quality that's in there Mm -hmm. is huge, and it really did turn me away from being a PC gamer for a while. Um, Yeah, yeah, stunning, stunning games. Yeah, that's, you know, the the N64 was really the, the time when Nintendo turned from being 
sort of all-around great console for both in-house and third-party releases to really just being a showcase of first-party in-house developed titles. Like you said, uh, all the, well, GoldenEye was rare, but I think Nintendo still had a hand in it. Wave Race 64, Mario Kart 64, all those were Nintendo-published titles. So, um, you know, you bought, the N64 was the beginning of buying a Nintendo console just so you could play those first-party releases. Yeah, yeah. And they all carried a premium. They all cost me about mm-hmm. 60 pounds each, which was uh, mm-hmm. even more painful as someone who was brought up in the world of Amiga piracy and cassette copying. <laughs> but, you know, I took the pain and it was well worth it. But I can think of very few things that I could have spent 60 pounds on in 1997 that would be worth one and a half million dollars now, John. Can you think of anything? Uh, no, n- nothing to that degree. I think that the the biggest thing in my life that I could I had access to at the time were actually Magic the Gathering cards. Uh, I got into playing Magic around 96, 97, that time frame. And uh, I don't know if you have looked at the card values now, but boy, they are through the roof. Everything is hundreds and thousands of dollars, you know, from around that time period or even a, a little bit before then. So, but nothing, nothing I could have spent 60 pounds on would be worth anything close to 1.5 million. This is, this may be, this may be the crest of the wave. Who knows? But uh, what do you think? Are we in a boom bust cycle when it comes to video game prices, you know, especially sealed graded video game prices? Or are we just entering the realm that comic books entered 20 years ago, where 20 years ago, a book, you know, might have sold for $60,000 and people said, oh, my gosh, sell everything now. And now prices have doubled and tripled. The curve just keeps going up and up. What do you think, Neil? Oh, really? I haven't followed comic books. So, no, I didn't know that had happened. Um, yeah. Go, whoever, whatever you do, if you're listening, whichever side of the fence I fall here, don't take my advice, please. <laughs> I have a track, <laughs> track record of very poor decisions. So, um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't think we're, if, if there is a boom, I don't think we're close to the bust yet. It feels like this is just the start of the ramp going up, doesn't it? Uh, I'm a person who bemoans having to spend £100 on a classic adventure game. But I do get it and I do understand the strength of nostalgia and the urge to capture a little bit of your youth by experiencing, opening the box again, playing it. Uh, People will pay good money for that. But one and a half million dollars for Mario 64, it just seems totally off to me, John. And even if it's not, you used the Ferrari example. I have zero nostalgia for Ferrari, but I can appreciate it as as a beautifully sculpted object as something that was top of its class when it came out, but also something that was never, ever affordable to me or the common person when it was new. There was no way I was leaving my job at at lunchtime on the checkouts to pick up a a Ferrari. That just (laughs) was never going to happen. But it was aspirational, as it was for 99% of us and totally out of reach. So tell me a sealed Mario 64 is £100, £500, or even £5,000, but £1.5 million just doesn't stack up for me, and I'm really struggling to get my head around that. Um, I don't know what I'm missing. Am I just struggling to get my head around the fact that I owned it like you did, and I unwrapped it, and now I I can add that story, the Mario 64 story, to the one uh, when I bought some Bitcoin uh, (laughs) way back and Mm -hmm. then sold it before it was worth anything. I don't know. I don't. I don't get it. Uh, maybe I just need to get some therapy, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
that may be true, but I think that video games definitely have some long-term market value, and I'm not someone that says that you can't do both. You know, you can definitely play video games, you can enjoy them, and you can invest in them in, in, in the long term. Uh, just to give you an example, um, I intend to use an app called Otis, Neil, Otis, to buy some fractional shares in a Nintendo World Championships card. So this is sort of the new thing in collectible investing where you know nobody can afford to pay $10,000 for a thing, but you can buy a share, you know, a fractional amount in, in something. And then when that object is sold by the company, you theoretically reap the rewards or don't. Um, the Nintendo World Championships cart, in case you're not aware, was the cart that was used by Nintendo in 1990 for a, a nationwide gaming competition, not unlike what was seen in the movie The Wizard. Now, uh, I'm not going to be betting the farm or anything. I'll probably put 50 bucks into it. But I do have enough faith in this market long term to drop some bucks. So mm. we'll just have to see what happens. Interesting idea. It's a bit like investing in wine in a wine cellar that you Absolutely. never get to see and you never get to taste. Um, I'm more for buying things so that I can actually pick them up and experience them. Sure. You're verging way into the just investment portfolio now, aren't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's definitely a brave new world when it comes to uh, investing in what people would consider to be frivolous collectibles. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, like I said, I'm only in for about 50 bucks. So if it all goes south, it's not the end of the world, but it'll be an interesting experiment. This week, pictures of a retro computer, Aladdin's Cave, which has been frozen in time, have been doing the rounds on our subreddit. The story was submitted by user uh, Clem Fandango, so thank you very much for that. Now, I should point out that looking back to the original source of these photos, they did appear about a year ago originally. That original post was by Redditor Sharpie Blamer, who said, and I'll try and do my best American accent, figure you all would like this one. <laughs> Boy, that's a computer dead on, shop. Neil. That's dead on, is it? <laughs> I ch channeled my amigo Aaron. Um, it says, a, a computer shop in my hom hometown untouched seemingly since 2002. Now, the story goes that the owner of the mall and the store went bankrupt in 2001, and it's just been caught up in legal wranglings ever since. So the story's just sat there in limbo. And while this isn't breaking news, I thought it was a good story to kind of prompt some discussion about good old retro computer stores that we used to enjoy. So, John, I want the listeners to be able to close their eyes and have you take them on a walk around your favorite computer game store of all time in the U.S. I want that USA experience. So talk us through it, John. Take us back through your memories. Well, it, it depends on what year we're talking about, but... Um... Let's say something from my youth in the early 90s, so around like 92, 93, something like that. I'll tell you one thing you wouldn't see, and that's any Amiga stuff whatsoever. <laughs> By the time the 90s kind of rolled around, the Amiga was a complete non-factor in the U.S. and uh, had set its sights on the friendlier ports of uh, England and Europe. So uh, when I remember going into my local computer store, which was uh, called Software Etc., uh, it was the, as far as I know, it was the biggest computer store around. I remember seeing just tons of big box games. That was the thing that struck me the most coming from a console background was just how much bigger 
the boxes were for PC games than they were for console games and everything that seemed like it was a different size. Now, looking at your bar that you've built there in the cave, Neil, I, I was sort of struck by how uniformly designed the, the boxes were. They were all pretty much the, the same size, at least in the Amiga world. But in my mind as a kid, walking around these, these this software, etc., it seemed like every box was a little bit different shape, a little bit different size. Some of them were like trapezoid shape and things like that. And so I remember being sort of you know impressed by that. Uh, of course, I remember seeing all the latest sound and graphics cards. It seems like a lot of them had renderings of some sort of, you know, pretty lady or uh, big robot on them that way, you know, to entice you to buy them. But, um, you know, I don't remember seeing any stores that were computer games exclusively. I think by the early 90s, at least in my neck of the woods, uh, you had to you had to envelop the console market a little bit. It was just so big. So you always had to split with the Super Nintendo and the Genesis running in there too. Of course, this is in a small market. You know, I grew up in a, in a fairly small town. I mean, the entire state, my entire state of West Virginia has less than 2 million people and it's about half the size of England. Okay, okay. Yeah. I, as a console owner back in the day, uh, I always remember my console owning friends. Uh, they used to just dispose of the boxes. They'd just keep the cartridges mm -hmm. and the boxes would disappear. Did you do that? Yeah. I yeah. did that and I kick myself every day for it. Yeah. Sorry, if anyone's watching this on video, um, I've got the sun shining right in my face from a window above me. So I'm going quite <laughs> luminous at times as it bounces off my head. I'm it's a sign from above. It. You're blessed, Neil. <laughs> it's been moving as the show's gone on. Uh, it's chasing me. Um, so going back to the pictures of this store, I've described what we've got here. It's based in a, a town called Norman, which is just west of Oklahoma City. Is that anywhere near you, John? I uh, no, nowhere no. near me at all. It's about a sixteen hour drive away from me. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. So yeah. about the entire length of the UK and then a little mm. bit more. Um uh what we can see is as it closed in two thousand one, you've got photos of products really from that era on the shelves. We've got aisles with the very identifiable Norton utilities there with Peter Norton uh, leering at us on the front of the box. We've got sound cards there. I can see the Pro Audio Spectrum 16 is on there. Windows Sound System cards boxed, um, which I have to say would have been quite outdated by 2001 uh, when the store closed. So I'm not sure many would have been picking up those cards around then. Um, and I'm seeing the must-own must item of the early 2000s for PC owners, and that's TV tuner cards. There's quite a few of those on the shelves. I, I checked this place out on Street View just to see if I could get a better look at it than the pictures. There's still a half-complete sign outside the front of it which uh, says Computer Factory Outlet. So that would suggest perhaps slightly um, that the products are a bit more out of date, bought in bulk specifically to be cheaper as an outlet, and that would explain perhaps some of the more outdated tech that's in there. There's lots of CRTs. There's lots of big full tower cases just um, lying around. It's a real mess, but it's nothing that... A weekend of cleaning couldn't sort out, you know, move the sun faded mm -hmm. boxes to the front of the aisle um, so we can see nice fresh boxes, pipe some shopping mall music around. And this place could be an instant tourist attraction, in my opinion. Um, I, I really hope it remains in limbo forever and people can enjoy it. Have you seen these photos, John? What, what stands out for you? Neil, I think you and I may have slightly different definitions of what constitutes a tourist attraction. <laughs> 
This, this place, <laughs> this looks this looks to be the most boring store that's ever existed. Oh, <laughs> you know, there's a reason why computer stores, at least here in the U.S., uh, kind of met their demise with the rise of Dell and Gateway and other order from home services. You know, it's almost as if all the manufacturers went out of their way to make all of their products and boxes the same kind of beige color and be as boring as possible. Um, it's it's such a far cry from, say, like 10 years earlier, where you had a plethora of competing machines. You know, you had the Atari 800, you had the Apple II, of course, all the British computers that were all decked out in colorful boxes, complete with the uh, maniacally smiling families on the cover that just couldn't get enough <laughs> of whatever was going on on the screen. Um, by the time we'd reached the early 2000s, everything just was just sort of beige and boring. If that's what the people wanted, people were crying out for <laughs> standards in computing. They didn't want all so. of these I mad so. computers that were incompatible with each other. So, you know, we got what we wanted, as boring as it was. Uh, but you say boring, I say hopeful, I think. Hope is the word. Because um, very early in my IT career would have been about this period. And I would have been going into stores like this and looking at these boxes, all hopeful for the future, thinking... Will I need to know about this software to support it properly? Will this peripheral make my life easier? Um, is this operating system going to change everything? Um, but that, you know, that's personal nostalgia. And I've got really fond memories of the hopefulness and the excitement of these products that you call boring. Damn you, the, the show's cancelled. <laughs> um, that's it. This is the uh, I can't argue with you purely on the graphic design aspect of some of these boxes. They are, yeah, they are as beige as some of the boxes we install them on. But um, I like I like it. I, I really think everyone should go and check out these photos if you haven't already seen them. It really is a time capsule. The link is in the description. And um, if you happen to know of any other places like this, because I've heard all sorts of stories about stores, not just stores, but also homes where people have moved away but didn't want to rent the home out and it's just stood in limbo for 20 or 30 years um, maybe grandma moved into a flat and just left her home as it was in the mid 90s real time capsules i'd love to see pictures and stories about that so do come along to our subreddit this week in retro and um, submit those stories and those pictures i think we'd both like to see them yeah from one computer store now that's trapped in time to another. It's RetroRewind.ca, your place for anything Commodore-related to keep your retro computers running in tip-top condition and to make your life easier when using them. From C64 to Amiga, Wi-Fi modems to Kung Fu flashcards, RetroRewind.ca has you covered. Oh, and capacitor kits too, don't forget them. Uh, for recapping your retro, they've got them for the Amiga, C64, C16, I think the 128 as well, everything you might need is all there, ready packaged in a recap kit to purchase. Whatever you need, give RetroRewind.ca a try, and we'd like to thank them for supporting the show and providing such a service to us retro lovers. Neil, a few weeks ago, we focused on a story about the site ROM Universe being defeated in court by Nintendo to the tune of $2.15 million. So uh, just a quick follow-up on that story. The owner of the site somehow managed to negotiate payments down to get this $50 a month for, well, what I assume is the rest of his life. It's going to take a lot of $50 payments to get to $2.15 million. 
Uh, but Neil, I, and I'm sure you'll be shocked by this, the owner of the site has missed his first installment. Oh, <laughs> Are you really? surprised to hear that, Neil? <laughs> Didn't see that one coming at all. Man who breaks law for decades breaks law again. Um, no, I'm not surprised. And after our earlier story, I wouldn't even be surprised if he decided to cash in one of his boxed games and just pay off what he owed in one single, <laughs> single swoop. Yeah, uh, but no, it doesn't surprise me. It's hard to believe that a shady ROM hustler wouldn't keep his word, but I thought that would be a good lead into this next story. Um, posting ROMs online for download is a pretty common thing. You know, everybody wants to play games from their youth. Uh, most emulators are freely available and easy to use, and all you have to do to get going is download both and, of course, run the ROM through the emulator. But, you know, we don't often hear about source code. You know, instead of the dump of whatever was on the original ROM chip, hence the name on a ROM file, uh, the source code exposes everything about a game, including comments by the developer and bits and bobs that didn't make it into the final product. It's always an event when source code from a game comes to light, especially if it's a game with a storied history like Defender. Uh, that's right, Neil. Thanks to a tip from subreddit user Remington Noiseless, I've now been able to gaze upon the original source code that sprung forth from the hands of Eugene Jarvis and Sam Dicker. You don't really hear about Sam Dicker. It's all, Eugene Jarvis hogs the spotlight. But anyway, Neil, what are your thoughts on Defender? Yeah, you don't hear much about Sam. I think he had some involvement with like the explosion routines and mm, things like I that see. in Defender. Those lovely, the way the pixels explode all over yeah, the screen. Yeah, which is a beautiful thing. It is, yeah, yeah. And the game itself is a stone-cold classic. It really is. Um, even if you don't remember the original release, which I was too young to remember it at the time, it was such an influential game that we had clones of it for years and years on every single system going. So there's no way you can't know Defender if you're, a, well, a gamer of any age, really. It's, mm -hmm. it's appeared, it's been re-released on modern um, compilations and all sorts. So, um, yeah, a real great game. It came out in 1981. It was by Williams. And in that same period, 81, 82, Williams gave us Defender, Robotron 2084, which is one of my favorite games of all time, and Joust three absolute classic arcade cabinets which no retro gamer i think would turn down given the opportunity to own them they were they were really in their stride in this period williams yeah now i did most of my defender playing on the amstrad cpc my first 8-bit micro and the funny thing is when i was playing it in the 80s uh, and into the early 90s my attitude to the game was mostly uh, it's just defender Everyone has Defender. Defender is hard, and I want to play something new and original that I can get further in. That was my attitude at the time. It's only later in my gaming life that I go back and play it and, and really appreciate it for its raw gameplay and what it was at the time. I, I guess I was just an ungrateful kid, John. <laughs> How about you? Well, you know, Defender has a special place in my memories because it was the very first video game box I ever saw. Um, when I was when I just moved to a, a new town when I was about five years old and I went to visit the girl down the street and her parents had an Atari 2600 and I still remember seeing the box for Defender laying on top of like a, a floor speaker and I, it was you know I, I have it on my shelf over there it's a very striking uh, painting you know Atari was the best when it came to, to commissioning original box art and uh, it's got a lady that's sort of slowly being vaporized by uh, by an, an incoming UFO so uh, yeah but the arcade version 
of Defender is an entirely different beast. It's tough. Uh, just, just sorry, John, before you go on, did you go to visit this girl specifically to play on her Atari 2600? Or did you go I'm to not see saying her? That I, I'm not <laughs> saying that I did, but I'm not saying that I didn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, you know, and, and later on she got a Nintendo before I did too. So there, there might have been a few <laughs> extra trips down that way that I might not have normally done. But, uh, but anyway, forgiving my personal foibles in life, um, the uh, the arcade version of the Defender I didn't play until much later, and I was stunned by just how difficult it is. It has to be one of the most difficult arcade games of all time uh, because of its, shall we say, unique control scheme. Uh, if you play this on an original cabinet, instead of a four or eight way joystick, what you have is an up and down lever that controls your altitude. And then you've got a thrust button, a reverse button, a fire button, and a smart bomb button. There's about eight buttons there, Neil. <laughs> so it's a lot yeah, of Yeah, this is where some of the, the home ports are that little bit more playable because they've been adapted to play with a joystick. Exactly. Uh, fewer buttons. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I had a chance to revisit an original Defender machine just a few weeks ago uh, at my local barcade here in Huntington, and it was just as difficult to beat the first wave as I remembered. So it did warm my heart to see that it still gets a lot of action, though, especially with younger kids. You know, those Williams games, there's something about the sounds and there's something about the graphics. They're just so bright, and that sound is just so unique uh, that, it, that it just attracts people like moth to a flame. So, But anyway, getting back to the story, if you want to compile your own build of Defender, or you just want to dig through the code to see how all the various systems work, this is the info dump for you. Uh, the code has been posted to GitHub by a user named Rob Hogan, who, judging by his earlier work, has quite the talent for reverse engineering code. Um, his previous efforts have included the Jeff Minter game Grid Runner and Tippus 2000, and there's some other ones too. Now, Neil, one question I do have is the legality of all this. Um, I would assume that source code is copyright, just like any other created work in the modern era. And whether you get that source code by reverse engineering it or not, uh, do you think it's okay for this guy to just post the code on GitHub for everybody? Hmm, good question. And I, I don't know if it's his real name or not, Rob Hogan. His little avatar mm -hmm. on GitHub is like a pixelated man with a with a black hat on as if he's sort of oh, a hacker or something like, like a hacker that kind of guy yeah so i don't know i don't know but uh, as i understand it source code is the intellectual property of the creator in the same way that a book is so mm. as soon as you write a line that's protected as yours um that's how i see it if somebody in the legal profession wants to correct me then then please do and we'll mention it next week just leave a comment on the subreddit but that's how i see it uh, there's no mention on the GitHub page um, to that aspect. I've read through the README file and checked everything I can. It does mention that there's an older release of the source code, and I think this expands on that uh, and also provides instructions on how to compile it because you have to do it in a certain order or, or something as I read on the README file. So it makes it all a bit more understandable and clearer. So it is questionable, and I doubt that even Eugene Jarvis has the power to give it away if he wanted to because it would have been the property of Williams. Oh, yeah, you're and right. And then um, I think Midway bought Williams um, mm -hmm. at one point. And then Warner Brothers, I think, bought Midway's assets uh, when they went under about 2009, 2010. So it's, it probably sits with Warner, and you probably don't want to be getting on the wrong side of them. 
yeah, yeah. Well, that's you know that's the problem with all of these old video games is that companies go out of business, they become acquired, people acquire the rights that have nothing to do with the original property, and a lot of times it's it's either hard to track these people down or they're such you know corporate uh, entities like Warner that are just huge that you know nobody will give you the time of day. So I don't know, but anyway, regardless of the legality, uh, at least he's he's not charging for access. And and uh, let's be honest, if you if you want to play Defender, there are far easier ways to do it including on the Internet Archive Arcade, which is also of questionable legality. But uh, anyway, you know, nobody's going to be like, man, I want to play Defender, so I'm going to build and compile this thing from scratch unless they're, they're really, you know, hobbyists. This you is might definitely be surprised. One. You might be yeah, surprised. <laughs> that's true. That's true. This is definitely one for the technically minded out there yeah. who really yeah. want to see the nuts and bolts of a classic. But if you do manage to build and compile this one from GitHub, uh, let us know how it goes in the comments. John, my journey through computer media formats, it goes something like this. Cassette tapes and also typing programs. Um, three and a half inch floppy disks. That would have been on the Amiga and then the PC. CD-ROMs, DVDs. I skipped Blu-ray entirely and now we're on to digital downloads. Of course, I did use other things like five and a quarter inch floppies and cartridges, but I didn't own devices at the time that used those things. Wow, so I... you never owned a thing that had five and a quarter floppies or a cartridge um no, oh hang on no i the n64 would have been the first thing i had which had a cartridge wow. but that was a bit wow. of an outlier at the time because everything else was moving to cd-rom so that felt a bit old-fashioned um, sure. flop five and a quarter floppies we would have had at school on the bbc mm -hmm. micros but yeah i didn't i didn't own it was cassette tapes very much yeah. in the 80s yeah. how micros. interesting yeah just a totally different you know it's it's, it's just like a mirror image of my youth interesting yeah five and a quarter inch di discs for, for rich kids over here <laughs> but um yeah but what always fascinates me and continues to is um well things behaving in unexpected ways and and formats that you don't think would be suitable being um, shoehorned to, to work with computers. Um, something that our friend Techmoan is very good at covering on YouTube when he discovers these formats and shares them with us. And this week, uh, Paul, aka Hermski, over on the subreddit, submitted um, an article published by The Guardian newspaper entitled Spin Machines, The Curious History of Video Games on Vinyl. And that article starts by citing an example of a flexi disc. And what that is, is a vinyl record that's so thin that if you hold it it just flops under its own mm. weight it, it, it's not a solid vinyl record by any means and um yeah it's a really interesting story because uh, the examples that they give in the story are for example computer and video games magazine which was the first i think it was the first dedicated purely games computer magazine in the uk here and um we had cover tapes and we had cover discs, which we've talked about on the show before, but we also had cover, I don't want to say plural, cover vinyls, but we certainly had a cover vinyl in mm -hmm. one example given in the article. And what that was, was a, a text adventure for the ZX Spectrum, which tied in with the pop group, the Thompson Twins. And they had a singular at the time called Doctor Doctor. So, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, Neil, this is definitely something that was a UK phenomenon. How How many singing groups were tied into computer games because you had the thompson twins i think wasn't there also a frankie goes to hollywood game for the spectrum there was yeah frankie goes to hollywood um uh, ooh, what, what other ones did we have put me on the spot now uh, well you had moonwalker you had michael jackson's mm -hmm. moonwalker 
You, you don't get that as much anymore. You know, you don't you don't get the Taylor Swift adventure game. <laughs> That's that that sort of thing is just it was a, it was a product of its time. Now the Thompson Twins flexi vinyl is a fairly well known example, but the use of vinyl goes way back. Use of vinyl for software goes back into the seventies with evidence that it started on your side of the pond, John, with the U.S. company RCA who experimented with the idea in the early seventies. And the article goes on to say that the first published data vinyl that was it was given away in September 1978 on a magazine called um, Interface Age. I've not come across that one before. Have you heard no. of Interface a, Age? Of course, no. that's a very early computer publication. So I yeah. don't know uh, what, what, it's, what its circulation was like. Hmm. Um, and that coined the term for it. Instead of flexi disc, they called it floppy ROM which I quite like, a floppy ROM. On its A side, it had a dress pattern, which you could load into your Apple II computer. And then uh, presumably you would just look at it on the screen and uh, I I doubt you'd print it out to cut your dress. I I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? (laughs) Not very skilled in dressmaking, so I couldn't really answer that. (laughs) But um, the term floppy ROM was used for a few years subsequently with other releases on magazines. And um, I think what really appeals to me about vinyl for software is just the very mechanical and analog nature of not only the recording, but the act of having to move the stylus onto the uh, onto the record deck, put it in place, mm-hmm. see the whole thing spinning away. Technology that would have been long established, even in the 70s, vinyl record players, you know, going back to the gramophone, they would be a very old and familiar piece of technology. And they'd be working together with a cutting-edge home computer, the latest and greatest at the time. So I really like that contrast of tech. I think that's what appeals to me so much. John, have you ever experienced gaming on a on a less common format? You know, when I was a kid, I, I got a magazine. Somebody gave this magazine to me. I did not purchase this. Uh, where you could play and i say play in the largest of quotation marks you could play super mario brothers by scratching off various parts of the page so imagine like a lottery (laughs) ticket or something where you you scratch off to reveal something below it so you start off and you'd see the entire board the entire level of super mario brothers just a long thin strip of scratch off material and as you scratched various parts off there were there were places where you could either do a or b and uh, and it would reveal whether you got power ups, whether you encountered enemies and, and survived, you know, to the end of the level. Uh, it was just about the lamest thing that you could possibly imagine, Neil. <laughs> so, <laughs> Do you think you, that counts? <laughs> yeah. So you could only play this thing once. Yeah, yeah, and then wow. you threw it away. It was the ultimate in you know uh, in forced obsolescence in, in yeah. video gaming. I'm guessing the girl from down the street didn't come to see you to play that one. She she did not. She <laughs> stayed at home that day. She had to wash her hair. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think it counts. I mean, technically, you were playing the game, but um, what I've always wanted to do is to put um, software onto a wax cylinder and see if I can load that in, you know, an experiment Mm -hmm. in in the most unsuitable format that I can think of. I think wax cylinder is probably the limit. Um, Yeah. I think of something better. Maybe you can load software down two cups and a piece of string and (laughs) feed it into the ZX Spectrum somehow. I don't know. All kinds of future projects for the cave, Neil. (laughs) I can't wait. (laughs) What's your favorite media to play games on if you want that full nostalgia hit, the whole all-encompassing experience? 
that would be the media that takes the least time to load. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to say, I don't have any nostalgia at all for load times, either from cassette or from disc. Uh, all of my happy memories come from playing the games themselves, uh, not sitting around waiting for them to load and or not load, uh, which is why I own so many flash carts for my various classic computers and consoles. Oh, spoken like a true Nintendo console-owning fanboy, John. <laughs> For those who, of us who grew up with British 8-bit micros, sometimes the loading screen was the best part of the game, and, and we savoured that time. So loading was oh, well, that, that might speak to the quality of a lot of those games. <laughs> Especially if you got some music while it loaded. Oh, that, right. was, that was a premium piece of software. <laughs> but um, as time went on, examples of using the vinyl format seemed to be limited to bonus tracks on music discs from the likes of Pete Shelley, a disc which I've demonstrated on my own channel, uh, Shaking Stevens and Chris Seavey, um, also known as Frank Sidebottom, who all included basic games, or in the case of Pete Shelley, what we'd recognize today as a demo. So this has flashing visuals and interesting things flying around the screen uh, on the ZX Spectrum, this one was. And the idea was that you would put the vinyl on, load it into a ZX Spectrum from vinyl, and then put the vinyl to track one and press the space bar on the, on the Spectrum, and the demo would play in time with the music on the record. Oh, so it was a real okay. music demo, which was quite impressive in about 1982. I think it was 83, somewhere sure. around then. Um, so yeah, it's, it's perhaps the earliest example of what we'd recognize as a, a music mega demo. And mm -hmm. it's probably my favorite example of the format being used in that way. But um, yeah, interesting stuff. Well worth checking out that article to hear about more examples and see links to YouTube videos and things like that. Thank you to Hermski. Uh, Paul, a.k.a. Hermski, for sharing this story, and you will find all the links in the show notes. Neil, last week's community question of the week was, what was your best charity shop, car boot, or dumpster diving yeah, find? I'm really looking forward to the answers on this one, so what have we got, John? All right, we start things off with ProTech438. He says, mine has to be the fully working and co cosmetically nice Commodore 128D that I found from an electronics recycling center store and paid a princely sum of 10 euros for it. You know, Neil, Ooh, so. I always hear about people finding things at an electronics recycling center. We have none of those around here. We call that the landfill, Neil. What Do you guys have electronics recycling stores nearby? I'm aware of one nearby, but when I contacted them, their response was, no, we can't give you anything. We have to comply with the law, which is to destroy them and do a certificate and prove we've destroyed these things. So mm. it not, wasn't really a recycling center, despite it having it in its name. Um, so, no, I haven't found any shortcuts so far, John. Yeah, well, maybe one day. Uh, Pajaco6502 says uh about 15 years ago i was at a boot sale and saw a ps1 for sale and it was a couple of quid so i bought it and then they said oh would you be interested in a sega mega drive and some games it was about 30 games containing some valuable rpgs and a side scroll and side scrolling beat-em-ups even for back then oh and a master system adapter <laughs> and wireless controllers oh, wow how much yeah i asked nervously and then the guy said seven quid seven pounds wow. so he said I think I started sweating and said yes. The guy even offered to help me carry everything to my car, and I didn't want him. To, I didn't want him to in case we got halfway there and he came to his sentence. His census, uh, he didn't. So uh, that is quite the story, Pajaco. Uh, seven pounds for a, a, a Mega Drive, Master System converter, wireless controllers, and thirty games. That's a that's a great deal. 
I think we we all know that that walk that experience when you know you've got a stunning deal and you're you're just so anxious that it's all going to go wrong. Someone's going to call you back and the hairs go up, up on the back of your neck. You just want to run to the car and dive in and drive away as fast. Trying as Trying to can. do a fast walk without looking like you're trying to do a fast walk. Yeah, we've all done it. Exactly. <laughs> that's a great find. That's oh. seven pound. That's awesome. And our final uh, entry comes from Doctor Wirt or Dr. Wirt. Not sure. Uh, he found Rick Dangerous, stunt car racer, and micro soccer on a compilation cartridge for the C64. He got one for 50p in the 90s. Three classic 8-bit games with no real load times. How interesting is that, Neil? I had no idea. First of all, C64 cartridges, it seems like even if they made a million of them, you never see them. And those three games on a compilation cart, what a deal. I've not come across that compilation before, and I saw the picture on Reddit and thought, yeah, that's a really cool combo. I mean, Stunt Car Racer especially, that's one of my favorites. So did you be able to just switch it on and play it instantly? Um, yeah, great, really great. For 50p, did he say? Yeah, 50p. Yeah, I'll be on the lookout for one of those on eBay, but I don't think yeah. I'll get it for 50p. <laughs> so thank you to everybody that submitted answers. And, of course, if you want to read all of the responses, just head on over to the subreddit and click on the thread. This week's community question of the week is, would you consider investing in specific video games as part of your retirement fund? Please post your responses in the subreddit and we'll read the top three most upvoted responses on the air next week. Please seek professional advice on all financial decisions. <laughs> <laughs> this Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash This Week in Retro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.